All right, we are back. We're speaking with Professor Stephen Harper of Northwestern University about election 2020, his many timelines about the COVID-19 pandemic and previous timelines about the relationship of Donald Trump and Russia uh, make him a bit of an expert that we are glad to have today. We left off talking about the manipulation of election 2000 and what that might mean and 2016. But on this program in, in the year 2004, we were watching very carefully for mischief in what might happen across the country. And and I thought we found lots of it in the state of Ohio. It looked to us as though the Republicans basically flipped Ohio and flipped the presidency back to Bush, even though it wasn't legitimate. And that that really concerns me. I hadn't really focused on that one, so you'll have to enlighten me on that one. Well, we'll refer our listeners back to the shows we did back in 04, uh, talking about the statistics. Well, they kept saying the polls are wrong. There's a lot of talk in America about how we can't rely on polls in America, unlike every other nation on earth. And uh, they claimed at the time that, yes, it's true that John Kerry had a 3% lead in the exit polls, but by gosh, he wound up losing by 2.5% once they counted the votes. They did a mathematical analysis of, the, of this and concluded there were three possibilities. One, it was statistical reality, the odds of which were 980,000 to 1. Uh, the other was that the vote count was wrong. The other was that the polling was wrong. Well, guess which one they chose? That <laughs> The polling was wrong. But it's possible that the actual vote count was wrong. That's, that's my one-paragraph one summary. Uh, at some point, you, you, have to, you have to trust people to do their job. Part of the problem is it depends which state, right? Sure. And, and I think part of the problem that Trump has, has at this point is he has to win so many states where he is in such terrible trouble that um, it would take a massive effort um, across, I think, many different states in order for the, the, the totals to be flipped in a way that would discredit every single poll that has come out in those states. I guess that's not a scenario that I'm particularly concerned about. Maybe I should yeah. be, but I, that's not one that I'm particularly worried about. Well, not to beat a dead horse on election 2004, but at the time, in America, we had a 5.5% swing from the exit poll to the actual count, whereas over in Ukraine, there was a 10% swing, at which point the whole world said, that's a fraudulent election. I just thought, obviously, it means that you can get away with 55 but 10 is too much. Right, right. Well, you know, although you, if you go back to 1960, there are people that say that Richard Nixon probably would have won if there hadn't been a lot of uh, dead bodies in cemeteries casting votes. I guess to some degree, there's, there's, uh, there probably is some of this that continues to happen. You like to think that over time, we become more sophisticated in the way we go about this process, that, that that's less likely to happen. But I don't know. Who do you trust anymore? I don't know. Let's get into the really ugly part of what, what Election Day may bring us. Um, you, your election timeline notes that you know a judicial resolution could loom. Uh, Bart Gelman wrote a great article in The Atlantic on this, and did, so did Ed Kilgore in, in NY Mag. All of you who've studied it note that the GOP seems to have contingency plans in place already to bypass the popular vote in numerous states. The Constitution does allow a lot of rigor room for this kind of plotting. So can we review some of the details of that? Sure. If you start at the level of individual states, uh, the thing, I guess, that people lose sight of is that state legislatures actually select electors for the Electoral College, and those are the people who determine who the president is. So if you have a contested, you know, say a closely contested race in a particular state, and if you have a let's just, we'll use, we'll, we'll make Trump the foil, um, but let's assume you have a Republican legislature, 
in a closely contested state, and the Republican legislature says, you know what, we think there have been shenanigans, problems, fraud, rigging, whatever you want to call it, whatever, uh, whatever people gin up. So we're going to throw out these ballots, we're going, to take, we're going to credit this particular count of the vote, and if I use this particular count of the vote, Trump is the victor, so we're going to certify those electors as our electors from this state for the Electoral College. Now, in some states, the, that certification comes from the, the governor as well. So if you get a Democratic governor, you get into a real mess, right? So Because he could say, well, I'm going to certify this group of electors, and those happen to be Biden people. So then it goes from there into the House of Representatives, where a new Congress has been elected, and um, they have to decide which slate of electors to accept or to accept neither of them. And, and the scenarios can play out kind of ad nauseum. And it's probably far deeper into the weeds than anybody, including me, cares to even think. And certainly no place anywhere anywhere your your listeners uh, are likely to want to traverse. Um, but the long and the short of it is there is, particularly in the scenario of the of the close election in a, in a particular state uh, for the presidency, there is a scenario that lands this thing in the House of Representatives. And it's not necessarily the case that what automatically happens is, in the case of a deadlock, the Speaker of the House becomes President of the United States. Yes, there are some unlikely scenarios we're talking about. It could be President Pelosi and, 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 and with Biden and Trump all claiming, three people claiming to be president on January 20th. Theoretically, right. The last historical analogy to any of this is the Rutherford Hayes-Tilden election uh, to succeed Grant. And in that case, the Tilden, Tilden was going to be sworn in. They, were, they had two competing, essentially two competing uh, slates, if you will, each of which determined a, a different winner for the presidency. As Tilden was about to be sworn in in New York, Ulysses S. Grant said, you know what, if, if you do that, I'm going to declare martial law. So they cut a deal, the essence of which was, as I understand it, was essentially eliminate Reconstruction, which was a of course, a terrible setback for the country, and Rutherford Hayes became president. Yes, I, I note that the secret deal that was cut in the case of the Rutherford-Tilden uh, debacle uh, was obviously influenced America for the next many decades, and yet we don't really, to this day, know the details of what, what deal was struck. It's, it's, it's disturbing. That's right. That's right. And uh, all we know is that at the end of the day, Grant did get the guy in that he wanted in. Now, what's different, of course, this time around, and what's even more frightening, is that Trump is the incumbent. If, you know, it would have been a, a, a imagine a situation where Grant had wielded that kind of strong arm, uh, and what he was seeking to do was remain president of the right. United States for another term. I, I guess I'm, I continue to believe that we're, we're not going to face those sorts of nightmare scenarios. Maybe I'm just being unduly optimistic. It doesn't hurt to think about it. It doesn't hurt to be prepared for it. Um, it's more important, I think, to be prepared for the rhetoric and the spin and the outright lies that Trump is likely to be throwing around after the election if it's close um, and if he loses, or even if it's not close and he loses. That's the thing that the American people really have to be prepared to, to withstand and say, no, you lost. We have a, we, we, we have a system, and you lost. That'll be the test of, the, uh, of America. It'll yeah. be a test of the great experiment. Well, a lot of people, myself included, are quite disturbed at the fact that Mitch McConnell and the Republicans this week uh, basically ramrodded Amy Coney Barrett onto the Supreme Court, and, and a lot of folks see that as an insurance policy 
for a 6-3 to three vote in favor of, you know, whatever machinations Trump's team might perform to throw the election his way. And, and Barrett has made it clear she doesn't see any reason to recuse herself on the election. Uh, I, 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 you talk about Amy Barrett. Yeah, this is an interesting question, right? The language of court packing always has always struck me strange in connection with accusations against uh, Joe Biden, because what's happened during the Trump administration is, is literally court packing. So um, what Mitch McConnell, because he was able to do it, because he had the, the vote to control the votes to do it, was able to prevent an Obama appointee, Merrick Garland, eminently qualified for the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, from for over a year from getting any consideration for the open seat left by Antonin Scalia. So that seat stays open, and Corsage gets it from Trump. Um, then we get Kavanaugh. And, and then, you know, I don't have to tell anybody what happened next. And, and here we are for the first time in history, you know, eight days or so before the uh, before presidential election, unprecedented, Amy Coney Barrett is, is sworn in. Such a naked power grab. You know, it's classic Trump. You know, when he when he first was was approached right after he after he won in one election in January he had a news conference about his conflicts of interest. And I don't know if you remember, but he had. He had all these empty folders. He and his lawyers stood in front of the press conference with all these empty folders, but he said they were full of things that were his uh, signing off on not being involved in various aspects of his company and so forth. But he, but he made a very telling comment there that I think uh, is really defined him. And and he said, you know, as president, I can't I can't have conflicts. There are no conflicts. He said, I didn't know that, but it's a good thing to have. It's, it's right. It's leveraged. Everything is leveraged. So anything he has, any tool he has, is leveraged. So you saw that again, you know, in, in Amy Coney Barrett. I have the votes. It's a, you know, I have them. Why not use them? You saw the same thing when he blew up the filibuster in order to get Gorsuch and Kavanaugh nominated to the court. You know, why? Why not? What? What? You know, people talk about norms. Well, who cares about norms? You know, if you have the power, use it. And, and that's, the, that's the definition of Trump. So this is an angle that I think he's probably hoping that it's a close enough election that there'll be something for the Supreme Court to decide. And I guess we'll see. What she will do is, will be, I suppose, the ultimate test of her character. You could say she's already failed that test because, frankly, any person of integrity and character who wanted to be on the Supreme Court would not have allowed him or herself to be uh, put on the court in these circumstances, you know, not in this way. Well, you're you're an expert Trump watcher, dating to your work on those Trump Russia timelines. And I think we mentioned last time that you were not seeing any reason to believe Trump was going to relinquish power, no matter what. And I, I imagine your opinion hasn't changed on that. That's true. And actually, the the one other thought I have that related to the Supreme Court, you know, there, there's been a lot of talk the last few days about what happened in in the Wisconsin case, where where Justice Kavanaugh wrote a footnote that essentially embraced a factually incorrect view of the election and an extreme view of how the Supreme Court might be able to involve itself in it. And I don't know if you want to get into the weeds, but long and the short of it is that what Kavanaugh essentially did, what he essentially said in the footnote, was to uh, say, you know, you know, everyone wants to have the election resolved, you know, on election night. People get suspicious if votes come in later and they get counted. Justice Kagan had the definitive response. Kavanaugh was concerned about flipping the election based on votes that came in later. 
And Justice Kagan responded in her own statement on the case, saying, there's nothing to flip until the votes have been tallied in the first instance. But the notion that there should be a winner on election night, which is the sort of the, 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 the implicit statement in Kavanaugh's uh, footnote, is just factually incorrect. And he, and he knows that because he and Amy Coney Barrett and Chief Justice Roberts were all on Bush's legal team for Bush v. Gore in 2000. And they know that there are states where the, the counting continues after Election Day. Kavanaugh knows that there are provisions in many states that provide for automatic recount in close cases, in which case the election's not over until that recount is completed. The election's not over until the board certifies an outcome. It certifies a result. And there's nothing sacrosanct or magic about November 3rd or November 4th or November 5th. It's whatever each state decides is is the point at which they can declare the election over is the point at which they then certify it. And at that point, the election is over. The other, the other aspect, and then I'll just leave it alone, is that and this is where, the, where people ought to be, I think, a little more concerned, is that there is a suggestion in, in Kavanaugh's footnote that if it was appropriate, the Supreme Court might well be within its rights to take a hard look at state Supreme Court determinations relating to what was appropriate and inappropriate under state election laws. And lawyers will recognize that as a, as a, as a red flag. Um, that was Justice Rehnquist's view in Bush v. Gore, and he couldn't get anybody but uh, Clarence Thomas to buy it uh, in 2000. Well, one thing your conversation today is really putting in very clear focus for me is the fact that I hope on election night the networks will refrain from uh, in, saying who won because they they really won't be able to make that call on election night. No, that's right. And, you know, the other, the other comfort that you and your listeners should take uh, is that Biden has assembled a first-rate legal team to go after a lot of this shenanigans that the Republicans and Trump are going to continue to try to employ in terms of limiting the vote and and trying to make sure votes aren't counted and so forth. Uh, ultimately, as you correctly point out, if, if there's a, a case that will make a difference and it makes its way to the Supreme Court, you can only do what you can do. But the Democratic team in this is absolutely first-rate, the legal team. And it's not like there's only one, one set of warriors in this. Uh, there, are, there are warriors for democracy on, uh, on the Democratic side of this thing in a, in a very big way, and they've been very effective. We're speaking with Stephen J. Harper, professor of law at Northwestern University, about election 2020. Something we touched on last time was that uh, someone out there might conceivably prosecute Donald Trump for negligent homicide as to, re- as to relating what he's done with the COVID uh, epidemic. Some years back on this program, we had on the late Vincent Bugliosi. He wrote a book on how George W. Bush could be prosecuted for murder based on, on his behavior in, 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 in warring on uh, Iraq. He got nowhere with that, but he was he was serious about it. And, and I just want to bring it up again, this idea that uh, we're talking about the mismanagement of COVID. That's another, perhaps, legal liability for Trump. Yeah, that's one of those where you, you, have no, you, you don't really have a serious, at least I don't have a serious uh, expectation that anyone will actually prosecute him for that. But it's, but it's, but it's happening in plain sight. When is a crime not a crime? Well, when, when people just decide that it's okay to do it, uh, I guess. Um, but, you know, if you look at just the legal requirements, um, it's hard to see how he, how he avoids, you know, checking all the boxes. He knows what he's doing. He knows it's reckless. He knows he's endangering people's lives. 
and he knows we know because he's gone to states. I think it was the Bemidji rally a, a month or so ago. They've now traced uh, you know a couple of dozen cases there. You've got Herman Cain in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You've got other people in I think it was in Wisconsin. He's a walking super spreader. If he were anyone else dropping poison in into people's water, he'd be behind bars, right? It's not that it's really a fanciful notion. It's just one that it's so so remarkable to contemplate that you would prosecute a president of the United States for this because you can't imagine a president being so reckless as to behave in that way. Um, the people just then just sort of, well, I, I guess that'll never happen. Let's move on. Um, and, of course, that's what Trump always counts on. He counts on people moving on. He, that's, he, Steve Bannon called it flooding the zone. Yeah. You know, you just uh, you put so much stuff out there that nobody can begin to deal with it. The news media will pick up the shiniest object, <laughs> and, and some really bad stuff's going to keep sliding, you know, all the way through. And the next thing you know, you're, you're, you're logging. Well, one little factoid I'd like to insert at this point was something that had a friend of mine's jaw drop early this morning when I mentioned it, was that Al-Qaeda in 9-11 killed 3,000 Americans. And we're, we're losing that now largely due to Trump's bad behavior every three days, which puts it in perspective. Yep, that's exactly right. How would this country be reacting if instead of, you know, people just quietly dying in hospital beds or at home, hospitals were being blown up, you know, with with a thousand people in them every day. And right. killing a thousand people. You know, you need, you, I guess you need something spectacular to get people's attention. You need something spectacular to, for people to think that something is wrong here, uh, or at least for some people to think that something is wrong here. It's also the case that if you go back, I, I don't know about you, but, if, you know, when I was a um, kid, you know, and, and, and I'm in my 60s now, my grandparents didn't talk about the Spanish, you know, the Spanish flu of 1918, influenza. But you know it had to be a big part of their lives. My my grandfather uh, at that point would have been 13 years old. My grandmother would have been, I think, 9 or 10. I never heard a word about any of that stuff. So maybe it's just some weird psychology associated with, with flus. Although I, I really do continue to believe that until it affects you personally, it just doesn't hit home. And for some people, even if it hits them personally, as you began said earlier on, the case with Donald Trump being, you know, case number one, even if it hits you personally, hurts your wife, hits your kid, doesn't matter. This doesn't matter to some people. I don't know why that is. Of all this doom and gloom we're talking about today, uh, the fact does remain that if you look at the basic numbers of the polling data, you look at what the Electoral College shows, there's lots of evidence we're heading for some sort of blue tsunami and that Joe Biden should win this thing in a walk. If he does, if he does, and we don't have to worry about any of this, and it's, it's, it's a landslide and it can't be stolen, what do you want to see happening between now and Inauguration Day and beyond? I would like to see the Biden campaign as president-elect uh, issue a memo to the entire executive West Wing uh, asking them to preserve all documents, emails, and other <laughs> memos and correspondence. They yeah. should hang on to everything, because I think there'll be bonfires and shredders going <laughs> crazy all over the administration. I guess I guess I yearn for boredom. I, I yearn for being able to sort of wake up and 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 have some confidence that there's a president who is actually willing to trust science, uh, that there's somebody that's actually thinking about the fact that maybe it's more important to 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 try to try to do something to get control of the virus now so that you know, people in two or three months or four months can resume something that looks more like a normal life. 
this is all going to catch up with the market. It already is. People have said repeatedly, you know, controlling the pandemic is the only sound economic policy. And in the long run, that's certainly true. And I guess I would just like to see some restoration of, of, of character, integrity, civility, call it whatever you will. Uh, my fear, and I hope I'm wrong about this, but my, I do have a concern, even if Biden wins by a significant margin, um, there'll be continuing pockets um, of, of Trump loyalists, big pockets. And I don't mean just in the government. I mean, you know, among the populace, in a sense, that refuse to give up on him. If he mounts Trump TV, uh, they start touting him as the front runner for the nomination in 2024. You know, I think that that's a real possibility. We'll worry about that another day, right? We'll sure. have that interview another day. But I hope I'm not alone in this, but I think people just yearn for 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 leadership that allows America to be respected in the world again, that allows people to feel like there's somebody on their side trying to get the country healthy physically and psychologically. We certainly, from where we are at this moment, have better days ahead. We, we may be a way, ways away from what have been our best days in the past, but we have to have better days ahead. Well, as we wrap up today, I did want to take the time to ask you about Bill Moyers. He has a great site, which you're a part of with your with your timelines, and, and Moyers has certainly seen it all over the years. And, and I'm wondering, do you have any sense of whether he's fearful of Election Day? No, I haven't. I haven't talked to him about it. I know that he's a like I, he's, he's, you know, it's not, this is, this is something that just transcends party politics. And the reason he runs his site, you know, you can tell it's, uh, you know, the democracy is sort of the, the banner of his site. And I think he is one of those, one of those increasingly rare individuals that has a sufficient perspective of all that has come before us to know that we're in an important time and um, that it is important for the country to get it right. And, and, I, and I think at the end of the day, I don't know, I can't speak for him, but I think at the end of the day, he's optimistic that we will. Glad to hear that, actually. As we wrap up, I guess my final question, uh, we've covered a lot of ground today. Is there anything else you would like to add or, or just uh, expand upon? No, I don't think so. No, you, you, hit all the, you hit all the high notes and, and all the low notes. I think we've covered the, the entire range. Well, if it's the best case scenario, I'd still like to talk about uh, what you know about uh, Trump and Russia. And if we're in the middle of a big mess, then we need a law professor to come back and talk about it. So we'd like to extend the invitation next month to have you come back if, if you've got the time. I'd be delighted. Our guest has been Stephen J. Harper, adjunct professor of law at Northwestern University and author of dozens of valuable timelines, which you can and should find at BillMoyers.com. Thank you for your time, Steve. Thank you. Appreciate it, Doug.